0: You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 34, 1983's Videodrome and the au revoir of David Cronenberg, featuring pussy parasites, armpit vaginas, stomach slits, asexual snowsuit mutants, eccentric psychics, Brundleflies, Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Irons, Typewriter Buttholes, Wound Fucking, Video Game Anuses, Vigo Mortensen, Vigo Mortensen, Vigo Mortensen, Limo Sex, Spazzy Movie Stars, and. Kristen Stewart. Martin. Yes. Death the Videodrome. Long live the New Flesh. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me, as always, is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to do some David Cronenberg? It's here. We're finally doing it. I know, right? I feel like we've been talking about this ever since Crimes of the Future was announced as coming out this year, is that we were like, obviously, we have to do a Cronenberg episode to coincide with its release. And luckily, we both really like the movie, but we'll get to that after we kind of do a general uh, Cronenberg breakdown, but I guess we can do this. Unlike with Tom Cruise, when was the uh, first time that you remember, like actually seeing a Cronenberg film? I think I have mine, but I want to hear yours.
1: I'll talk about this when I, the second time when I connected with him, that's cool. Um, that's I've been, fair. I've been thinking about this. So like I saw the fly when I was younger, I saw a couple of the bigger ones. Um, but I'll lay it on the table. I'm pretty sure David Cronenberg saved my life. Like, no joke. Um, so I was in grad school. It was my second semester. Um, pretty much had a full-on fucking nervous breakdown the semester before, because that's what grad school does to you. And I suddenly decided I should watch David Cronenberg's movies. Like, I just I finally said I should make my way through his, his filmography and – I saw video Videodrome and it like reset my brain. I'm not fucking kidding. And it, at, at once it re, like renewed my faith in like loving movies because I was in film school. I thought I hated movies and I had complete depression. It like knocked me out of my funk. I, I, I mean, I know that sounds kind of over the top, but it was around then. I think I was like 25 and I made my way from the beginning from shivers up and when I hit video Videodrome, I'm glad that's the focus of today's episode, because that's the one where it's just like, I clicked with him. I was like, it's top three ferret movie, period. Um, but I don't know, that's, that's kind of what, when I came to him. And then since then, I guess the last 14 years, I've been a super fan. Like anytime
0: something new comes out, I'm the first one at the theater, see it as early as possible. Was that around the same time that the Criterion of Videodrome came out? Because, I mean, that's when I really yep. started to dig into Cronenberg as a like auteur, because a lot like you, I remember seeing The Fly probably first as a like kid on cable somewhere. And like just the whole melting Jeff Goldblum of it all like, oh, yeah. completely blew my mind. And it was also weirdly one of those movies kind of like Aliens in that my parents really liked it. And it would like my dad in particular would talk about like how good Aliens was. And he was also like, Oh, and he wasn't a big and he still isn't a big like horror movie guy at all. And he was like, Man, the fly is so good. You know, because I remember him like catching me watching it one time and I thought, Oh shit, as like a little yeah. kid, like I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna change the channel. And instead he kind of just sat down with me and we were watching it together, and he even was commenting, he was like, Oh man, this movie's just amazing and even in my like young brain i was like dad likes this horror movie like that's he's the he was the type like i always went to the horror movies with my mom in the theaters i've mentioned this before in the podcast we've seen a a bunch of stuff that i probably shouldn't have seen in the theaters because your mom's fucking cool yeah and but thank you uh (laughs) but my dad was the one that was like no 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 you can take matt to go see like whatever you guys are watching, I'll go see whatever war film is currently like playing <laughs> and then, yeah, we'll meet up and then we'll go out to dinner or whatever. So I didn't really make the connection like on, I guess the cerebral level yeah. with Cronenberg until college too. I was an undergrad when I was really starting to study movies. Um, and Drone came out right around the same time. And I remember just mainlining all of his stuff because History of Violence came out of theaters too. And that movie was a big deal in a weird way because it, it, it felt like another reinvention within his filmography to where it was like, oh, he's coming out and he's making something that Approaches being like a populist mainstream entertainment now and non body horror, yeah. And I remember borrowing a buddy's car and driving to like Greensboro to go see it because it wasn't playing in the actual little college theater in North Carolina that was like right by the campus. So I drove, you know, 30 minutes or whatever to see this movie, and on the way back was just on like Cloud Nine, like, oh my god, I love that thing! But yeah, it was the same way, like, I remember writing. One of my first big college papers on Cronenberg doing like a huge like research paper on him, watching everything I could find reading Cronenberg on Cronenberg, which I is a it. tremendous. You I know, still got it upstairs. Book. Yeah, exactly. It, which would hold on to that because it's out of print now. Yeah. It's impossible to find all his favor and favors are impossible. I'll get the Schrader one the Scorsese. Yeah. yeah. And they're all incredible reads really insightful into how like those guys brains like really work. Oh, yeah. Um. But like, yeah, that was when I started to engage with the idea of Cronenberg as like an auteur and I think fell in love with the idea that you could change in such a way as an artist and like consciously change to the point that where it almost frustrated the people who admired your work for so long is that it was like, well, you're not going to go back and do the thing that we really liked at first. Like after Dead Ringers, you know, yep. is that it's almost like, no, I'm... a I'm done with that. I'm more interested in like exploring these avenues of filmmaking. I think he has, I mean, he's my favorite filmmaker of all time. You know, it's like him and Brian De Palma and Michael Mann are really the ones that have to like knife fight for it. But Cronenberg is the one that has made the movies that have spoken to me the most throughout my life on both like, an intellectual and strangely enough, an emotional level, because I think for all of their scientific frigidity, you know, they are incredibly heartfelt and often very melancholy a lot of the time. And I just think that he's, he, he really is the thinking person's like horror filmmaker. No. And that's, that was exactly what I was going to say is that
1: I think he was an early person for me. You know, this is back in 2009 when I, was really making my way through his filmography. This is pre a 24 being what it is where it's, you know, elevated horror. Horror is now like the, you know, name of the game. And a lot of it's quite thin when compared to Cronenberg. Cronenberg is this thing. I was already a huge horror fan. I'm like, Oh, I get my steak and potatoes and you know, I get, I get a great horror movie and I get a lot to to, to chew on. So I think Videodrome succeeds at, at both that it's a great like intellectual film but also you can tr- it's a fun fucking horror movie. Like it's just it's pretty wild. Well, and it's always
0: awesome to remember too that that was a tax shelter movie. Absolutely. All like, the early ones were, right? Um well the cfdc funded stuff like Shivers isn't quite a tax shelter movie. It was more like when he was making um those picture deals with like Claude Hurro, Pierre David. Pierre David Claude Hurreau and Victor Solnicki so, yes, were the three producers that he was working with and those were mainly cuz he had like a three picture deal with them to do like tax shelter movies for I believe the company was called Cinepix at the right. time. Yeah. And so it was like I think like scanners the brood the brood and videodrome are the main 3 with the CFDC we're the ones funding the Canadian Film Development Corporation. We're the ones funding like Shivers and Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, like Fast Company, I think, were, too. and uh, Fast Company, I think, is Cinepix as well. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, but I mean like tomato, tomato at this point. Because, I mean, that that's the coolest thing about Cronenberg is that those early genre pictures were almost entirely made out of necessity, out of the fact that like... He wanted to express himself, and he had made Stereo and Crimes of the Future, his two uh, earliest experimental films, you know, with unsynced sound and really kind of like avant-garde ideas and uh, a, a almost non-linear approach to storytelling or it's not even non-linear. It's almost like amorphous approach to storytelling. Abstract film, you know, storytelling. He even admits in that Cronenberg on Cronenberg book, which I was skimming briefly over the last couple days in preparation for this episode is that he was like, I knew after I made those like, Oh cool. There was kind of like an underground, like art scene emerging in, in Toronto. He was kind of a big part of it he was getting folks that, you know, other filmmakers and stuff that were coming through and watching his movies and really admiring them. But he was like, I can't make avant-garde movies for the rest of my life and have a career fucking doing this. So he wrote orgy of the blood parasites, which became shivers and got it funded, like tried to get it funded through Roger Corman and new world pictures, like took a whole trip to Los Angeles and everything. And, by his account, is that the one that Jonathan Demme almost directed or was that rabid? I think it was orgy of the blood I, parasites. I don't remember. Cause I believe the story goes that he tells in Cronenberg on Cronenberg is that he took like an LA sojourn, um, tried to get the movie funded really just also to just see LA as like a young college kid and being like, this is what I gonna do with my life. Like, what does this look like? And he took all kinds of meetings and shit with these low budget companies trying to get this movie produced. But then met Jonathan Demme because Jonathan Demme was renting some like beach house near where he was staying. And Demme was like, oh, yeah, I've read your script. And Cronenberg's like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, yeah, they offered it to me like to direct Orgy of the Blood Parasites. I believe was was the one. And Cronenberg was like infuriated because that was the one that he was trying to get made and wanted to be like his breakthrough into making like narrative somewhat commercial features. So he flies back to Canada and basically freaks out on the producers at the time, only to find out that the CFDC had fronted the money and it was time to start making it. (laughs) So, I mean, I always thought that was interesting is the fact that like, there's a real sliding doors moment there to where we could have gotten Jonathan Debbie shimmer, like shivers. And it would have sidelined Cronenberg possibly. Yeah, completely. You know, That's then, what I mean by yeah. sliding doors is that he could have gone a totally different You're, direction, maybe become like a novelist or whatever he was thinking about doing. But then, and then Jonathan Demme probably continues and has the same career path because let's face it, he's still making, you know, movies with Peter Fonda and and women in prison films and yeah, all those like kind of low budget Corman stuff before he goes on and becomes like Jonathan Demme, the fucking, auteur, yeah. you know? But how do you feel... About the earliest stuff that Cronenberg does with Shivers and Rabid, because they are rough. Let's say they—they they don't. I'm not a huge schlock guy, straight up schlock.
1: I'm not a big fan. Uh, when I was making my way through, I started with Shivers in in 09. and I was like, "Oh man, I'm not sure about this." And it wasn't until The Brood where I was like, "Okay." this is what I'm talking about. You know, they, the brood is his first, like quote unquote, real movie. Absolutely. And I don't want to like, there are parts. I like. we watched rabbit last week together and this parts are really are fun. And you can see he has things he's interested in, in, in both movies. But I think the schlock kind of overwhelms the pacing for both is not interest. I guess he's always been interesting with pacing and like, he doesn't always follow a classic structure but I like it when it's on purpose and not doesn't feel like the product of just like kind of genre filmmaking with low budget. That's what, that's what Rabbit kind of feels like to me. It's a little
0: bit all over the place too. I relate them a lot to George Romero's earliest movies to where like one always felt like an extension of the other or like, like he the was crazy. We talked about exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's that they're kind of building on one another to where shivers is clearly like that high rise that is featured in the movie is the soul setting. Like that's almost like his first Petri dish, uh, uh, like cinematically to where he starts making these weird little experiments, but it does feel like it's more made by a scientist than it does an actual storyteller because it's, it's cold. It's kind of amateurish. None of the people really feel like human beings. Exactly. They feel like experiment subjects, Mm -hmm. you know, that he then unleashes this, venereal slug virus upon and allows it to, to overwhelm the entire high rise with this kind of sexual psychosis, which honestly would be a thing that would run through the rest of his work. Yeah. I mean, up to today, which we'll get to, you know,
1: and it's interesting you say that the coldness thing, because you were kind of mentioning earlier how he's sometimes seen as very clinical, but also there's a lot of warmth and then humanity in his films. And I agree I think in these early ones, it's less purposeful, maybe. It's like, I'm trying to make a movie, but I'm a very weird fucking guy. And so Shivers feels kind of unnatural versus later ones feel a bit more like it's it's motivated for the, the kind of coldness of his character. Even that like Crash, for instance. Like, that sure. feels very purposeful to me.
0: My thing is over time, I've learned to think of Cronenberg as less weird and more... Uh, to steal a word that he uses to describe himself a lot, pragmatic. Yeah. Like he's very much a guy who did go from wanting to study science mm-hmm. in college to becoming an English major in college and wanting to just, because he even tells that story in Cronenberg on Cronenberg to where he was like, you know, on the one end of the campus, as we're all the science geeks were. And I was doing all that and finding basically this might not be where I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Cause I would always be at the liberal arts end of the college watching like because well watching movies, talking about whatever books or poetry or whatever we were reading. And also frankly, because that's where all the girls were and that (laughs) Cronenberg like makes no, he's kind of like De Palma in those early interviews in a weird way. And the way that like, one of the things that makes De Palma, let's say, qu- problematic for some people these days is that, like, he never shied away from the fact that you really like pretty girls. Yeah. Like, that was one of the hallmarks of Brian De Palma's a pervy entire, like, like, filmography. His yeah. And Cronenberg had, like, kind of speaks the same way to where he's like, I just want to, you know... I wanted to meet girls. I wanted to like hang out and talk about philosophy and get laid and just be young, you know? And it's, it is strange, especially now with 80 year old David Cronenberg, who has, I believe as Martin Scorsese once described him in Fangoria, the demeanor of a gynecologist from Beverly Hills, (laughs) you know, he's very soft-spoken. He's very like almost like academic in the way that he's incredibly polite Um, but the thing about him is that it's, there's almost a pragmatism that he takes from his love of science that he applies to the filmmaking that I think gets in the way of the humanity in the early films, because it's with like shivers, for example, it's all about, okay, we have this experimental doctor. What would happen if his disease got out and infected the building? Okay, cool none of it is dealt with on, like, a hysterical melodrama level. It's all, like, it's almost like each interaction with the slugs becomes, like, a different case study. And there's no emotion. There's no real, like, uh, what we would think of as, like, human stakes to it all. It just crescendos and crescendos and crescendos until the final slow-motion shot in that swimming pool when it just becomes a true, like, orgy of like infected individuals and it's rabid becomes like when say like if if the giant building is the petri dish rabid is rabid is basically what happens if that's demolished and the disease spreads into the rest of the world because suddenly cronenberg has to like make a movie that is thematically very similar it's again about science run amok Uh, Marilyn Chambers, you know, in her first dramatic role outside of pornography. And it's all about STDs, too. And it's all about her, you know, getting into a motorcycle accident, being worked on by an experimental plastic surgeon. And then that experiment goes wrong. It makes her into more or less like the first technological vampire. Only she bites people using a strange vagina penis monster mouth that grows under her armpit. It kind of reminds me of the episode um,
1: of <laughs> of South Park where um, Eric Cartman gets AIDS when he tries to, he gets a tonsillectomy and he wakes up like, sorry, we gave you AIDS. And it's like that kind of thing where you're like, really. it's just like at zero to 60 is like, yeah, I got the, I got the fucking accident. You gave me a fucking like armpit vagina dick. And it's funny. I was thinking about shivers though, is, you know, obviously Cronenberg wasn't as a fan of JG Ballard. I mean, he did crash. Shivers a lot, feels a lot like high rise, the book, which was made by, sure. by Ben Wheatley about a microcosm of this, this community that's taken apart by, you know, with, with high rises more about what's happening in the world and they're kind of isolated. This one's actually a disease, but it has a similar feel. And Ballard also kind of had a clinical view of humanity. Sometimes so I could see the connection there, but um, it doesn't have the narrative thrust like drama is a very mature film. When we, when we get there, you know, it's like very weird and very clinical when it needs to be. But also it just really moves um, that the narrative is very well told for as crazy and mind bending as it is.
0: Yeah, because the fly becomes the one that really is almost like the apex of like the body horde where it's like all of his tools are kind of sharpened to where he's then able to craft this movie that's kind of just bangs on every certain like every level. But Rabbit is interesting too because I was watching uh, a zombie movie I'd never seen today, a big kind of gap in my cult movie knowledge which is the the Living Dead at the Manchester Moor. Oh yeah. Um which I found to be quite the bridge between Romero's uh, Night and Dawn in that it has like a counterculture protagonist He's traveling out to the countryside. You know, they encounter some zombies. There's an ecological uh, sort of concern that feels like hippy-dippy, like, oh, look at what we're doing to the earth, and that's what causes these zombies to rise up. There's, like, a fascist police officer. There's some great uh, gore prosthetics. Like, it it feels like the Euro-horror extension of what Knight was starting to do and right before you know, Dawn comes along and and really again becomes like the apex of the zombie movie. But like Rabid is like a neat reminder that like Cronenberg's movies were exploitation films that were also made to make money and like kind of rip other things off because the influence of Romero in Rabid is tough to deny because it becomes more or less like a full-on zombie movie only instead of zombies it's infected folks like just going mad and attacking everything that they see in the, you know, in their path, but also having a very morbid sense of humor to where like, there's that whole mall shootout set piece where like, he literally guns down Santa Claus and has the security guard go, Oh shit. After he kills Santa Claus in front of, in front of a bunch of kids, this reveals that like Cronenberg may be a scientist, but he does have a sense of humor and we'll,
1: Get into that more with his newest film. But, you know, there's some stuff where... I think I think Naked Lunch, too, one of his funniest movies. Like, very, very, like, goofy at times. Oh, yeah. Especially Weller. He's so deadpan, like, the whole fucking time.
0: All the mugwump stuff oh. is really weird.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's funny, because, I mean, like, we were talking again about, like, the crazies. Like, that's 73, I believe. Yeah. And then Shivers is 77? 75. Oh, 75? Mm-hmm. Okay, but it feels it's a couple years later, and it does feel very
0: like Shivers and Rabid both filled the pull from the crazies to me in particular. Yeah. And then you also have fast company, which a lot of That's people 77. Sh- right? Yeah. And, yeah. A, and a lot of people count as almost like his outlier, let's say like it's, it's not Cronenberg but if you watch it, it's literally all about, Drivers inhabiting new bodies after they crash the old ones so that they can get to the next stage in like their evolution as a driver, and totally focuses on Cronenberg's car fetish, which again runs through a huge chunk of his career and includes Rabbit with the motorcycle. He loves vintage motorcycles. Yeah, we talked about like one of
1: my one of my favorite sequences is in um it's just uh Naomi Watts just driving around. In London, right. in Eastern Promises, which al- with
0: almost the same exact motorcycle that Marilyn Chambers rides in Rabbit, and I think it's very similar to the
1: one that he rides in when he's a courier in M Butterfly. Oh, true, and yeah, like, it was which like, is a vintage BMW. I was like kind of taking note when I was watching that. Um, well, you make a good point, though, because that's a theme that I've always liked about Cronenberg is um, just identity in general, you know, and that the idea of the connection between body and identity and how they can sometimes be separated or you think about the fly of this guy who's like i'm seth brundle but i'm becoming brundle fly like the, as my body changes i'm changing i'm you know not just my body but like i'm melding uh mentally into you know there's no insect politics he says you know we just we kill
0: um one of the greatest monologues in horror movie history it's too. so good
1: he's like you ever heard of insect politics doesn't exist, you know, but I think it's so cool that you get to the post quote unquote body horror stuff with, um, like history of violence, but it's still the same thing about identity of just like he buried Joey out in the desert, you know, and now it's coming back. The thing, think this thing he thought he had, he had, uh, suppressed, um, Eastern promises too. I mean, very much like it's a canvas of Vigo's body, you know, of all his tattoos and playing another person and going undercover, um,
0: not just in a spy way, but physically as well. Well, Eastern Promises becomes a better movie after you see it the first time and then go back and rewatch it and realize, because the big reveal, I guess, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen Eastern Promises, I'm sorry, but like that Vigo is an undercover cop living in the skin of this aspiring Russian gangster who's really like a driver the whole time, like rising through the ranks of this, this crime family. But once you see it a second time and watch all of his mannerisms and the way he interacts with Naomi Watts in particular, like it's clear that he's not this guy, but he has to exist in this person's skin. And you're watching two individuals. You're watching the skin or the shell of one person while somebody else operates it. And it's, again, the same thing like, you know, the, the uh, Joey, let's say, conundrum at the center of history of violence is the fact that it's one guy living inside of another guy's skin. And I believe Cronenberg has even commented on this himself is that he was making the same movies. It's just without the quote unquote goop. Exactly. No, it's, it's still the same. I mean, fucking M butterfly is a, he didn't write it, but like
1: it's a fucking Cronenberg movie of two characters, you know, of John Lone's character. Who's a man pretending to be a woman also trying to be an opera singer when he's actually a spy. Um, and then you have Rene Gallimard, Rene, Ga- Rene Gallimard. I love, he- I just love how he pronounces French words. Like I fucking love Jeremy Irons. Like if anything, watching music, again, I'm just like, God bless you. Like he's so amazing, but that he's kind of playing a part too. And he's, he's falling into the role of the, the M butterfly, the, the white sailor, you know, he's, he's being pulled into the narrative purposely,
0: by John Lone and his compatriots, which is awesome. Um, Well, and that's the great thing about that movie. As it unfolds, it goes from clandestine love story into full on spy thriller. And it, and it has these layers that just keep peeling back and peeling back and peeling back all the way up to that tragic finale. When Galliman's in prison for his quote unquote final performance, which is like one of the most heartbreaking things Cronenberg's right like ever committed to screen. Also Cronenberg, I think lives up to John Carpenter's estimation that he was better than all of that generation quote unquote combined because like he could even do the bleak ending better than Carpenter could all of his endings to one degree or another like, especially in that early run are just like shattering by the, the time the credits roll. I, I completely agree. And um, I, I think about
1: again, with M butterfly, the, the fact that he's, M., he realizes that he's the butterfly, you know, also, you know, not to get, it's very superficial, but Cronenberg loves bugs. He loves obviously the idea of, you know, chrysalis and be, and becoming, you know, turning into another creature. And so, the fact that Gallimond finds out that he's the one who's been betrayed by a man and he does, he does, that man does not deserve his love and he kills himself. It's like, Oh, the whole narrative was switched. So again, identities being flipped on each other. Um, another thing I was noticing too, is there's also multiple layers to the identity. Um, the identity and the acting. So for instance, dead ringers is a perfect example of you have, from a performance standpoint, Jeremy Irons playing two twin brothers, but then there's scenes where he's playing one brother pretending to be the other brother. First of all, in a, a masterclass in acting, but also like that's Cronenberg too of a, a, a character wrapped in another character, deception wrapped in a deception. Uh, Spider's the same thing with um, with Miranda um, Richardson. Yes, um, her thing too, where it's like there's different versions of his mother, and she has to play those wrapped all together. So Cronenberg that's a, that's kind of a predilection he has as well.
0: The brood though, to take it back to one of your earlier points is the real moment when humanity begins to step into Cronenberg's narratives because that movie, unfortunately is so personal to him. Yeah. He was going through a divorce for, from his first wife going through a custody battle with his children and a lot of his psychic damage from that legal battle seems to be spilling over into this fantastical horror movie narrative about a woman who is unhinged, tries to get help and ends up more or less, uh, creating these self-defense mechanisms in tiny mutant children that murder whoever she gets mad at.
1: That's I love that
0: point because
1: he finds a human analog to put at the center of these stories and then surrounds it with the insanity that he creates his, his more scientific stuff. That's what Cronenberg brings that really, you know, obviously interesting, super heady, like what if you could externalize your trauma and externalize, you said your defense mechanisms? but connected that to like the fly is it's a cancer story. He says it's straight up about watching your partner die of a disease and they're not the person that you married or, or got together with. He centers a human story. That's probably his most human film, I think, out of all of them. The one that gets me the hardest. Um, Most simple human, like, just love story.
0: What, The Fly? The Fly. Oh, The Fly is the one where I have to debate whether or not that's his like purest masterpiece to where like, even on a storytelling level, it just works mainly because of Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, because the the chemistry between them, they're obviously in love with one another at the time and really brought it to the screen. Um, But the way that they even dive into the uh, histrionics of it all is just, it's so incredible. Again, the monologues feel Shakespearean And when I saw Cronenberg at Beyond Fest, I believe in 2018, Mm -hmm. um, and he introduced The Fly, he talked about how he even originally wrote The Fly as an opera. And like you were supposed to view it as an opera. And that really unlocked it in my brain to like a whole other level of uh, emotional kind of feeling because it's so big and bombastic. And you can just hear Howard Shore's score like it comes crashing down at certain parts and really gets you into the whole like idea of being swept away with these people who are more or less their bodies are changing because of science. But their their emotions stay the same for one another.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's also, I, I it's such a, it's such a, it's such a sad film. Um, Like, I get to Magic, it every time. Yeah. It, it, like, it's also one of his grossest, I think, just, it, it, some of it has the grossest effects he's ever put, I think. Oh, yeah. Just the complete dissolution of, of Brundle's body. But, like, there's the scene. The hand vomiting, the whole arm wrestling scene is disgusting. Oh, it's just, in the wetness, the sweat on yeah. the, the fake bodies. And there's the... It's so sad because it's also a great screenplay structure of like when he first is mixed with the fly, it's great. It's like I can fuck longer, I'm stronger, and then well, he's a drug addict. Yeah, he, yeah, because yeah, he's and he's just you know he needs the sugar and he's just like he can go all night, and then it turns, um, and that's another thing that runs through his films is is, is addiction. Um, watching obviously Naked Lunch by Burroughs, which you know
0: wrote Junkie, and a lot of his stuff is centered about his own addiction. Um, and that movie is an amalgamation of a few of his books and, and on his, top and his of life, <laughs> his biography, and Cronenberg's own invention too. Yeah, and that's I mean like the unadaptable book they said,
1: and Cronenberg, he's like, well, I'm not gonna just straight up adapt it. I'm gonna do my own do thing. my own thing, and you know mixing
0: in. That's his it, ultimate lit student like experiment like where he just comes in and he's like oh yeah that's right this is why i loved reading books and it's it's one of my
1: favorite films of his i i just rewatched it last night um for like probably 10th time um I, I really i really enjoy it i think it's one of his prettiest movies
0: it's I, gorgeous I, the carol
1: spear uh, probably some of her best production designs she's always great but also shusitsky's cinematography and the saturation and like just the tan skin and everything in inner zone um, it's just so pretty. It's just so visually pleasing.
0: Does his sister do the costumes and on the that costumes one Denise? too?
1: The tweed, everything is so yeah. tactile. It's one. It has, has just... that '50s like colorized oh. noir look to it. Yeah, and Shore brings his like early jazz stuff, and it feels like you're living in the Beat Generation. It's super cool. Like line
0: it up with like Inside Lou Davis for a great double feature. You know, like living in that kind of time period. And there's even that scene where like Kerouac, like shows or like stand-ins. Yeah. more or less show up. Show it's Ginsburg up like him, and Carrick. Ginsberg and Karak, yeah. Yeah, it's like
1: his... But they call him something else, but it's like, that's
0: who they are. Yeah, that's who they are. They're avatars, yeah. more or less. But the the brood is... Sorry, I keep taking us away from the brood. Where he meets <laughs> uh, his wife that would actually stay with him until 2017, too, Caroline. Mm. So, like... I think that there's a lot of personal reasons that you dig into once you start doing research on Cronenberg as to why that movie is the big pivot point emotionally in his filmography, not just from a biography standpoint, but he was bringing a lot of like real raw emotion to it. And then scanners, I think, I I think that's why I, I, I still struggle with scanners. I, For the homework for this episode, I mainly focused on the movies of his, which are few and far between, mind you, that I don't think are great. And despite all of its iconic uh, imagery and sort of place inside of like horror and sci-fi fandom... Scanners is one of my least favorites still. Even I think it's super entertaining, and the stuff that's great in it totally works. Like fucking Michael Ironside as Daryl Revok. Daryl Revok. So goddamn great. The exploding head, um, the the action sequences that Cronenberg comes up with and actually proves himself pretty uh, adept at at Mm -hmm. staging action. That whole shotgun car chase sequence is so so fucking cool. There's so many good shootouts in it too. A A lot lot of good shotgun, a lot of shotgun stuff, a lot of shotguns. (laughs) He liked shotguns a lot at that point in his career, but still, I don't think intellectually or emotionally that movie does a ton for me. It's, it's, um,
1: one of my favorites and I, we've talked about this before, obviously, um, totally agree. It's one of his thinner movies conceptually, but also, uh, thematically, um,
0: I watched a lot because I just, I really, I love Howard Shore's score for it. It's one of my favorite. Well, the you se- can feel the the seeds of the fly being planted in that one. Like, from the brood through the fly, like, he's doing a lot of variations yep. on the same themes, but they're all fucking great.
1: Yep, and it's, and we've talked, I mean, like, you know, Stephen Lack is, is a very... Uh, charisma void so to speak who's a visual artist but it's it's laughable how blank he is cast because of his eyes apparently yeah and they're awesome and he's much better in um in dead ringers uh he actually because of the horrible like dubbing of his voice too for scanners is distracting but i love it's probably his most action based movie just straight up like it follows
0: an action thriller plot It feels like him trying to break through. Yeah. And being like, I can, with The Brood, it's like, I can do this. I can make a mainstream movie. I can make a movie with fucking drunk-ass Oliver Reed on set. Yep. Samantha Eggers on there, and she's giving a real great performance, too. she's great. And, like, that's the other thing that The Brood kind of introduces is name actors, not just kind of these Canadian B and C, like, grade players, frankly, or porn stars in Marilyn Chambers' (laughs) case. Um, But he has, like, Oliver Reed coming in and, and giving a fucking awesome performance, but also sweaty and drunk performance as Dr. Ragland. Like, he's so good in it. And then with Scanners, Michael Ironside, who is not a huge, like, known quantity at this point. It's like that and Visiting Hours, I believe, are mm-hmm. the only movies that he's, that I really know him from from that period. And he, he was kind of like a Canadian character actor coming up. But, like, Ironside just... Goes for it, man. And then who's the main professor? Patrick McGowan. Yeah, he's so great in it. That voice that he has is just—it's like syrup. Why
1: are you such a piece of human filth? Yes, yeah, you so know, good, man. <laughs> Cameron.
0: Um,
1: I miss you. When he says I missed you, it's so weird. I've missed you. I've you. missed you. Well, I think it's the other thing I like about the film is it's probably his most comic booky too. It again, it's just super
0: light. It's X Men.
1: Yeah, it, it's X Men. And and I. I think I told you, like I love stories about telekinetic people. Like I, I, mean, even I like Firestarter. Like anything about kids or adults that have like they can move things with their mind, and there's like government agencies after them. And obviously, I mean, fucking Stranger Things, those people definitely saw scanners at some point too. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, I, they pulled more from Firestarter, which also, in my mind, pulls from scanners. So, um, but I, I just, I love it's a very, it's a good entertainment. Um, and I like, I love the. uh Daryl Revick's like three gunmen and the gun woman who he controls telepathically who had those like those like kind of smocks on and they had their shotguns. just again so comic booky and and action movie based um, while still feeling incredibly cold and Canadian. Yes. Oh yeah, and everything is just
0: really drab. The whole thing. Yeah. Uh,
1: but I, I'm I'm a big fan. Tweety. Um,
0: <laughs> indeed. And then uh, that one lives towards the bottom with another one that I know is a lot of fan favorites but it has never quite set. You know what? I think it's a good movie, but again, it doesn't engage me emotionally or intellectually like the other ones do, despite I think being better than scanners is the dead zone. I because hear that. I watched that one again too. I hate, and this is me speaking the guy who like loves Douglas Sirk and has like autobiographies or biographies on, you know, rock Hudson and shit. I don't like the melodrama in it. I really think it feels like Cronenberg straining to be like, this is what normal people like. Like they like, like Johnny and he confesses his love and asks his, his girl to marry him. And he's really trying to like tap into the small town Americana, like castle rock vibe of Stephen King. And it just, I don't know. It feels like an alien translating that.
1: If there are two artists, and I'm a huge Stephen King fan, who do not belong together, it's Cronenberg and Stephen King. Right. The guy who should make King films is is Spielberg. They're the same. They're both sentimentalists. They have a very similar view of humanity. And they're entertainers. And they're entertainers, straight up. And I think the difference between King and Cronenberg as well is... Cronenberg, I think, is a lot of times concept first, and like the sci-fi ideas he has are so mind-blowing. That's never been King's Strong suit. He has good monsters, but the thing is always his characters. Like he's very good at building a town and building a community of people that you care about. And I think that's where his kind of magic lies. He doesn't get lost sometimes in the in the details of the monster. when Cronenberg creates these very elaborate fantastical, but also science-based creatures and and horror elements. So I think they're just, they don't belong together.
0: Well, and again, it's his pragmatism. It's, he's always about what does this mean? What does this monster mean to the person who's involved with it? What does it represent in terms of their psychology or the, the state of life or that stage of life that they're going through to where the dead zone never really gets there with it. It feels like him trying to embrace the pulp more than the actual, uh, heady psychology of it and it just you know doesn't quite connect. That said, if you put on the dead zone right now, I would still watch it like I, front I to back. I really enjoy it. And I would yell, The ice is gonna break at the very moment that Walken like freaks out. And also like all the Martin Sheen stuff yes. is iconic and resonates for a reason through the Trump era because like that's it, it feels real. Like it that character might be the greatest of Stephen King's thwarted bully kind of archetypes as they, they move up and gain some kind of power and then try to uh, force their, their uh, megalomania on others. Like Martin Sheen is such a great villain in the dead zone. hundred percent. And I was just going to say, I was, we have to talk about him because
1: King is like actually, when Trump was elected, I think he qu- he tweeted something about Greg Stilson, the character. Right. It's also like, that's the opening of that fucking book, is Greg Stilson as a Bible salesman beating a dog to death. Right. I mean... That's so
0: fucking King. Which it's, is like, a, it's
1: like a Flannery O'Connor story, you know?
0: I was going to say, and that's a, a scene that he's replicated like several times, especially in his more epic novels, like stuff like The Stand yes. or Under the Dome. Under the Dome, he has the one character that's almost like a small town version of Greg Stilson. I can't remember what the character's it's name B- is. Big, Big Al or Big yeah, Big Dan, some shit. Yeah, but the, the mayor kind of guy. Yeah, it's always like... Because King is real big into the idea of what you do, not to get too far off on a tangent, but his big definition of evil, especially with these villains, is what they do when they think nobody's looking. Yes, That's always doors. the biggest uh, signifier as to what kind of human being you are, which, I mean, is pretty great kitchen sink wisdom. But, I mean, yeah, Stilson is one of the ultimate villains. And, like, the ending of The Dead Zone in print or on film, regardless of who the author is at that point is just, it kills, you know, because it's it's all about, cause I always like the concept too. And it's, I I don't think it's a concept that we honestly could do these days, especially with mass shootings and uh, the way our, our political state is at the moment. But like, I always like the fact that it's like taxi driver, a movie about, the gunman that we don't know is a gunman the entire time, but it makes you empathize with the person who ends up pulling the gun on a famous person or on a politician in these two cases. And I've loved that framework and wanted to write a story along those lines for so long, but I'm also like nobody's ever going to publish or, or make this because like the last thing anybody wants is a movie where the protagonist is a lone gunman.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's very much the, Big question of if you if you could kill Hitler and you knew, you know if you could kill the next Hitler, would you? You know and that's that's the question of the movie too. Is he shakes his hand and knows he's going to do a great evil, and it's his job to rid the world because if he doesn't kill him, he's going to fucking nuke the whole entire
0: planet. Would you kill Baby Hitler? Like if you had a time machine, you could go back. It you're would, not you're like you're not scared of like butterfly effect type shit. Okay, I'm more scared of that than I am about killing a
1: baby. I know it's going to be like the monster of our modern time. Yeah. I know it's, but I, I do believe, I mean, I do believe the butterfly effect. I think we'd probably fuck everything up. There's a
0: great, uh, I, I'm always worried about the theory that you create a different monster in its place that you don't even consider. So, which really leaves us with Videodrome, the movie of the episode, which I have tattooed on my right forearm. Um, I think like you was a life changing event when I first saw it because I was in college as well. I was an undergrad. I wasn't a grad student, never went to grad school. I don't know if that's sadly or not, but like, I think you made the right choice. Yeah. You think so? (laughs) But I remember again, driving like 30 minutes to like a best buy buying, that movie and then watching it 10 times and then trying to watch it with some of my frat boy buddies and one of them literally walked out of the room like as soon as we got into like the the M like ear piecing piercing stuff with Debbie Harry like he was like, nope, I'm done and I was like, oh shit this movie's actually hitting people's buttons like however like 20 something years later even at that point I think videodrome is a stone masterpiece and advice for like, the spot of my favorite movie of all time.
1: I've told you it's like easily top three for me. And sometimes it moves into number one as well. Um, It is a movie I enjoy. It's a movie I find intellectually stimulating, but I also think I love how, like you said with your friends, how effective it is. I showed it to a friend too, and he was, he liked it a lot, but he's like, man, I'm kind of fucked up by that movie. And as we'll get to with our new film, I like that. I don't consider him a provocateur, but I believe he makes films that that hit you. I don't think he's out there like purposely being a douchebag, is what I mean by provocateur. Well, he's not an
0: edge lord, That's but what I, I mean, do yeah. think he takes a little bit of pride in pushing your buttons. Like crash. Out of all of the films, because, I mean, like, I wanted to save some of the 90s stuff for when we talk about crimes of the future in our our next segment, because I feel like crimes fits much more into that experimental run, a very cerebral, almost unclassifiable kind of genre work. Naked Lunch, too. yeah, Yeah, to where, like, it's very not even, like, clinical. It feels like a guy exploring like being completely unconcerned with the actual emotions that drive behind it. And it's more again about like, what does this mean? Like what societal concept am I really deconstructing here? But like Videodrome feels the closest to any of those out of his like quote unquote classic body horror era. Because to yeah. me, there's I get an emotional kick out of it in a rush by the end because I think it's an incredibly sad, tragic movie about transcending uh, your current form and what that means, especially coming from a guy who is a devout like atheist. Like there is nothing beyond what Max Wren currently uh, exists as it's like he when he uh, destroys himself, like that's it for him. But I always like the idea of Videodrome also being this movie about Cronenberg, and about how he was ready to transcend, and and is kind of standing at the precipice of being this totally different director, but almost feels like he has to purge this and the fly out of his system before he can do that and move on to like the the very uh, clinical, no pun intended, uh, melodrama of of Dead Ringers.
1: It's I agree, and I, I think that. Um... A lot of his male characters, most of his films are male leads. They just feel like analogs for him. You know, that he, he picks these certain guys who have the same body type as him. They're all... Same facial structure. same, same long, They have long faces. They're all like very sinewy, bony guys. All
0: of them. You know, they have very similar body types. And... Um, like, it's weird that he found a guy in Rabid that looks like an even younger version of Chris Walken from The Dead Zone. Right. And Walken has... They're all kind of lurchy. Right, too, you know, um,
1: and I, I agree that like *Video drama is very autobiographical. Um, what's well, also, I mean, it's, it's about a guy, like you said, it's about a guy who's stuck in genre land. You know, a guy who's like, I don't want to be a schlock filmmaker. I want more. You know, I, I feel like I feel like that's what's going, kind of going in there. Although I don't like to be seen that way. I
0: don't think that he dislikes genre. I think he actually he. Talks about it quite favorably, and he he's never shied away from those years. Like he's not uh, disavowed any of those films. Like he says, like that's me, that's who I am. You know, as a person, even at that point in time in my life. I think Videodrome is more about a guy knowing that working inside of a commercial system that he still has boundaries that nobody's going to let him cross. Like he's always going to be trying to push against the limits of, of good taste or whatever you want to call it all in the name of his experiments. And it's not so much about genre. It's about the fact that he's making genre movies that are still governed by systems like the Canadian film Mm, censorship board or the MPAA who are going to butcher them because like the original drafts of Videodrome like ended with Max Wren meeting like her master aphidic angels that had penises that countered his vagina and stuff. And it was supposed to be like the yin to his yang. And like, he turned the dress and they're like, there's no fucking way you can do this. Are you kidding me? Because it was, and again, it was all the one thing that he talked about, especially in that Cronenberg on Cronenberg book um, from crimes of the future on is how his sexuality was always viewed as fluid there was never like a gay or straight, like he identifies as a straight man, but like he cast a gay philosopher as the lead in his first two quote unquote finished feature movies. And he relays an anecdote about when he s- screened crimes of the future is that a young gay guy came up and tried to pick him up because of it. Cause he just assumed that Cronenberg was gay because the movie embraced a very, uh, fluid, notion of both gender and 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 sexuality that's not even bisexual. It's just, it's pansexual. It's pansexual to the greatest degree. And I feel like that's what he's fighting against is the idea that like, and if you listen to him talk about even crimes of the future now and like how with the new one, with the the new the the new crimes of the future, I should clarify. Thank you. Is that he talks about how like, he didn't get stuff done for so many years because like he had something in development with with Netflix. He had something in development with AMC. He tried to do this, he tried to do that, but they were all too, quote unquote, conservative. That's his own word to describe them. And I feel like that's what when Max Wren is like talking about what he wants to display for for his uh, channel 83 is that he's like, I want something tough. tough. I love that like it's not just that is Cronenberg in the moment being like, I want them to leave me the fuck alone and make like the most radical horror and sci-fi film possible. But he also knows he can't get a movie distributed by universal who ended up putting this tax shelter Cinepix film out. Like nobody's going to distribute a movie with hermaphroditic angels. Like it's just not going to be a thing that exists. <laughs> I, that's your, thank you for clarifying that. Cause I think you're, you're right
1: that, that makes more sense to me in terms of where he was professionally, maybe not thematically, right. but just professionally. The, the constraints of the film industry. I think it's also interesting, though, that a lot of his characters running throughout the entire um, his filmography are artists or expressive scientists scientists who um, want to overreach. They want to push past. a a boundary of some sort. And that could
0: be the boundary science of God, of, of what have you. Um, well, even as earliest films like the first crimes of the future from 1970 is all about, you know, a, a failed scientist in the middle of a plague looking for his vanished mentor. And it's all a stand in for somebody searching for, for God, for that, that absent, uh, figure of like divinity and like that's what Cronenberg is always kind of fighting against with the rest of his narrative features is the idea that like there is nothing divine it's just we're all searching for like what the next level of transcendence actually is or or just you know I remember a a high school teacher saying I forget what the quote was we're all
1: looking for the feeling of being alive right that's the basis of humanity and I feel like we'll get to that with Crash but a lot of these characters, I mean in Naked Lunch as well, these these disaffected people who are drug addicts are trying to push the limits of of reality or of just humanity because this is not enough. Like what they have now and like I like your idea though of him being an atheist because like they can't rely on God. They can't rely on this idea of oh, what'll be better in the afterlife. It's like the body is reality. It's now. This is it.
0: And the body represents whatever's wrong with it. Yeah. Like, you gotta it, fix it. Yeah, and that, or it—it it just becomes what you have to deal with. Like he talks about it in that book, um, his dad developing bone diseases, mm. where he had like a calcium deficiency and stuff, and would litter, literally, like roll over in the middle of the night and break three ribs. Jesus. That's how much like that his body by the end, like more or less, betrayed him, and that's stayed with Kromenborg throughout the rest of his life. And the idea that like as you age and as you you realize more and more that you are mortal and that you eventually will end the shell that you call a home that you travel the world in. It's eventually just going to be like stuffed into a dumpster and decomposed like everybody else is. That becomes the ultimate antagonist throughout the entirety of his filmography is the idea that we all die and that our bodies will break down. And I think it's also why he likes cars so much is because cars are the perfect kind of metaphor for the human body. They all have hearts. They all have parts. They all have oil. They all have things that They're can sexual. go totally wrong with them. Yeah. They have orifices that can be inserted. You fuel a car up with something that looks like a dick, you know? And it's just like, that's why he loves machines as well, as much as he loves like human flesh and blood vessels. Yeah. And then the body, the, the
1: biomechanical things that he builds and has his production designers built for the films as well. That mixture you know, um,
0: of the body and and machine too, and I think video drum. The other reason to bring it back to kind of our movie of the hours. I think the other reason why it resonates so hard, particularly with guys like us, who spend a huge chunk of our lives, like looking for the next thing that's really going to wow us is that you could make the argument that Videodrome is the diary of a cult film collector. Mm. It's literally about a guy looking for the next thing. That's going to really push his buttons, whether it be sexually, whether it be violence, you know, whether it be like something that opens or expands his mind beyond uh, what he currently believes to be possible on this planet. Like that's what, Max Ren is doing like he's meeting with Japanese businessmen and drab hotels to get like soft core sex movies, like a drug deal, like a, a weird drug deal. I love that scene so opening much. It's the case and it's just the, the tapes. He, oh yeah. He's having these, uh, meetings in very public places with other like contacts that like clearly think that they both are like a little off the whole time and it's kind of uncomfortable, but like they need each other because that's without them, there is no connection to that darker underbelly of like the artistic world that he's trying to explore and, and expose to a greater audience with channel 83. But then that leads to one of the greatest, uh, kind of themes that, run through his Cronen- that runs through Cronenberg's work that we haven't even touched on yet, is they're all about secret societies. Oh, yeah. There's so many sects like, ex- existing within his narratives, be it, you know, it, and again, I feel like Shivers starts the smallest version of it. There's a guy that exists inside this tall, you know, filing cabinet, cabinet, of like an apartment building who's doing these these clandestine experiments and then rabid takes you to a clinic a lot like the brood there's these secret kind of clinics where these mad geniuses are existing and in the brood it's the Kellogg uh clinic i believe yeah, I think so. and then in or it's Dr. Kello the Kelloid clinic that was it well the brood is um and then the brood is the is the Raglan. Yeah. The, the snow, the summer, summer free, summer free yeah. and it's Dr. Raglan, but he's like the, uh, secret, uh, uh, like Dr. Kind of mad genius, Dr. Yeah. Frankenstein, And then you have Seth Brundle obviously as one versus like the scientific community. Yeah. Versus the scientific community. It's these outsiders existing, but then even in stuff like crash, like we, we mentioned is this secret subsection of society that gets off with sex and car crashes and uh, gets into uh, these performances and these stage car crashes. M butterfly is all about the secret pocket of uh, Chinese uh, opera singers, Spies, scanners, <laughs> yeah, and spies and scanners is about warring sex of of psychics that you know society doesn't see. Eastern promises, Eastern promises is the invading Russian mob. the Russian mob. History of violence, less so, but like you kind of get where it's going there. But video and scanners are all about wars that are happening right underneath our noses that we are not aware of because we don't interact with this subculture. Yeah, I, I
1: love I I love secret societies. I think I talked about when we were watching The Empty Man on that episode I was like if you put a cult or a secret society in your movie, I'm going to like it. Like three
0: stars automatically. We're only going up from there. I just
1: like you're already there. And and that's I think it connects again to a thing I like about Cronenberg is that He's just great with genre and with pulp. Like a lot of his a lot of his films for me really on their surface just really work in that way. That's why I like scanners so much. It has that very paperback. Kind of feel to it, and Videodrome too. If you strip away the meaning, what a cool idea of two secret societies of basically almost like a war between Beta and VHS. It feels like well, and they're <laughs> warring over the
0: signals that are gonna wipe are going to wipe out the other ones. Yeah, you know? and they're going to change the. You know, I love the idea too of the morality and the physiology of human beings. It's
1: well that plus like the idea that you know he says you know the, the future is going to be is hard and we need people who are going to be tough. They're putting it out there. Patron. Patron to to change our bodies prepared for a more violent future, which is like fucking like intellectually mind blowing, but also just cool. (laughs) Like it just, it's also like, I just like the way they talk. Like you strip everything else away and I like it. It's just poetry to me. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Just like,
0: because it's all still again, rooted in the fact that Cronenberg's this, voracious reader of everything from like pulp paperbacks to like the media theories of Marshall McLuhan, which is what half of Videodrome is based off of. It also has some of his great, like kind of like our boy, Paul Thomas Anderson. Cronenberg is one of the ultimate like geniuses at naming characters like Brian Oblivion, Barry Convex. um, Who's the main scanner? Uh, Cameron Vale, Cameron Vale, like, there's just so many fucking great ones uh, throughout, like, the rest of his his filmography. But with Videodrome... The Mandel Twins. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Where he literally is making twins of himself as a young boy, and he even cops to it. Like, that early prologue in Dead Ringers is literally yeah. just two little David Cronenbergs. But, like, with Videodrome, he finds a way to really tap into the potential of these warring like secret factions Mm. that I think even scanners like fails to do. And because I think again, by putting Max Ren at the center of it all, like he gives you an identifiable figure that even if you don't know anything about David Cronenberg, you as like, a hardcore devoted like genre film fan or like Max Ren guy looking for the next movie. That's going to blow his mind and like blow the minds of like everybody else. He shows it to like, that's me. That's what I try to do all the time. And then also the point is fucking podcast. Yeah, I know. Right. But it's like, he also falls in love with Debbie Harry, which is like, who wouldn't, she looks so good in this movie and she's really fucking great in it. She's awesome. Uh,
1: like, and her mouth, like on the the classic, the TV screen, you know, come to Nikki is just so like, and that's Rick Baker
0: who does so Rick that? Baker
1: did the TV, right? Yeah. And a couple other gags, um, which is a great,
0: did he do the skull splitting one too?
1: Or, and the cancer gun? I think so. Well, so I'm not sure. I think so. Yes. Um, because he doesn't do the product. I think so. The, the production design, like the helmet is different,
0: different person, but yeah, I think the cancer gun, which is so fucking cool. Um, I think Videodrome is the other one too that we have to talk about. That's the first one to really start introducing the Cronenbergian, let's say uh, flesh mechanisms that would go through mm. the rest of his movies like the brood and scanners like they start to move towards it but there's nothing like when James Woods's hand grows into a, a gun that literally shoots cancer, the vagina in his stomach like obviously that the closest analog to that is, the the uh, pods, the pods, or I was gonna also say the uh, external uh, uterus on uh, that's what I meant. Samantha sorry, Edgar. the pods on the outside yeah. Of her. Yeah, and that that great reveal to where like she's literally growing something on the side of her, and then you dis- I disgust you. You uh, hate me. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> but then, like, also, like, Existence, I always felt like was the closest cousin to video drums. Oh, as much. yeah. I don't love Existence. In fact, I don't even really like Existence that much. But, like, that also has some really gross, weird weapons, like the whole, like, fish gun yep. in that one, <laughs> the one assassin sequence. The uh, really gross, like, what do they call them? Like, when, when they get, like, Willem Dafoe installs, oh, basically gives Jude Law a tramp stamp by like jacking in the, 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 pods where they can, they can hook into the existence video game and everything. And they jack directly in, but like those fleshy, gross, like uh, controllers that they use in existence feel like something that's straight out of the Videodrome world. Like yeah. it's really the, the. The most of his imagination just kind of spilling onto the screen, and where we get all of it at once.
1: Yeah, and I think comparing it to existence like Videodrome, feels very ahead of its time, and to this day, you take out the VHS idea, or it still is about media in a very forward-thinking way. Existence feels like a couple years too late. Like he didn't quite get video games. To me, like he's trying to do it for a new generation, and that's why it didn't click with me at least. Also
0: tough the same year that The Matrix comes the out. Same fucking year. Like it's it's yeah. like, ah, you're doing a lot of the same shit in the same movie, and it just, you know, you had one of the most the the bigger pop cultural touchstones to come out of American movie making in the last like 30 years released the same year. Yeah. It's gonna hurt. That's a little tough. But the last thing I want to talk about with Videodrome is frankly, uh, how he leaves you sort of hopeless. A lot of the time, again, where like the ending with him is Max Ren shooting himself. Right. And like he dies, um, a lot like how, uh, dead ringers later just leaves you oh, with two Jesus. dead twins. Um, you know, uh, Naked Lunch ends with him shooting his wife and going back to inner zone. Like, I don't think David Cronenberg is shy about the idea that in order to transcend, you have to also sacrifice in order to do so. And that sacrifice involves pain and even sometimes the destruction of your own body. And I think that's the other thing that I've always related to, or at least like, become attached to with his uh, kind of bleaker sensibilities is the fact that he isn't afraid of the idea of like self-destruction too. And it's there's a lot of fluidity there
1: too, you know that he doesn't he doesn't come down with with moralistic judgments on on things such as suicide, yeah or or physical self-harm, you might call it. Definitely get to that with Crimes of the Future, um, and there's some fluidity there of that pain can have a purpose and that death can have a purpose, um, which I don't always agree with, but I find it interesting. Um, and the same fluidity you have with gender and sexuality of like it's not one or two. You know, there's a lot of stuff in between, and it can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, and I think the same thing with these films is. There's also can be a, a weird sense of hope, like buried underneath it all, you know, that there's just, that there's a kind of like a little bit of um, medicine with your applesauce
0: that you're not quite sure. Well, it's the next step in the experiment. You don't know what happens until you conduct it. Yeah. You want to get to crimes of the future? Oh,
1: I can't fucking wait.
0: All right, let's do it. We're back, talking about the films of David Cronenberg, and now, more specifically, Crimes of the Future. Martin, what'd you think? I loved it. I This is one of my favorite movies of the year, of the last couple years.
1: Um, I did not love, uh, I quite dislike Maps of the Stars, um,
0: and don't love cosmopolis i I get people like it doesn't click with me i like it quite a bit i don't like maps i'm like you We're like that was another one i had to give a second shot to uh for our robert pattinson episode and was like nope still not like this yeah
1: but this one and we'll get into i love that it's more people are oh it's a return it's like it's a return with a lot more Um, it's about returning. (laughs) Um, I think it's very, very meta in that respect of an artist. Oh yeah, going back to his roots, but also being like, oh, you want me to do this? Well, I'm going to do a movie about that. Very similar, but in a better way than like even Matrix Resurrections is about a filmmaker, an artist being forced to return to something. Yeah. Um, but I think this one is so autobiographical. Probably his most autobiographical. Um. Or one of his most autobiographical films about being an aging artist and trying to stay relevant and being copied um, and watching the world kind of pass you by and being like, oh, am I not, you know, everyone's doing me now? Like you know, body horror is a thing and a lot of horror. and people are like, but I love the kind of F you it does to some of that of like it's just it's just window dressing. Um, this is a lot in this film and also like a lot of his best stuff. I find it really entertaining. I like the world. I think it's gorgeous. I love. All the Carol Spear um, production design. I love the broken down parts of Greece they shot in these old industrial. All the global warming stuff. Oh man, like the opening shot of that like tipped over cruise liner and the kid playing on the beach. Like it's just a visually very similar kind of naked lunch. Like just a gorgeous kind of lush when it wants to be. I love that fucking Vika looks like a goddamn Ronin samurai like in his badass priest garb. I love him doing his version of Cronenberg. I love Leah Seydoux being just a movie star and being gorgeous. I love Kristen Stewart being weird
0: as fuck. Really weird. Just
1: one of her weirdest performances. I love Howard
0: Shore's score. So that honestly, rippling kind of like electronic score that he does. Oh, honestly, man. that's closest to like Videodrome, all uh-huh. that seasick kind of like synthesizer that he does in Videodrome. Wavy. Like It feels like him playing around the same way that he played with a lot of the electric guitar uh, in crash yes the way that he's just like doing all of that heavily reverbed guitar that sounds like it's just bouncing off of the hood of a car the entire time so fucking cool
1: and and you know i don't want to jump on any of your points you're going to make but like something you and i talked about when watching this was just that it's kind of a similar to miami vice for for michael Mann. this is like the most cronenberg movie right it's like secret societies body horror push the envelope of sex fluidity just the look everything it's
0: just it's there all the elements so how can you not as a Cronenberg fan really enjoy it well and the other thing that we haven't even touched on yet and I was hoping that we wouldn't until we got to this segment is performance yeah so much of his like body no pun intended (laughs) is about people who perform to one degree or another. You started to say it uh, when talking about Existence, is that it's it's almost like people pushing the boundaries and, and being artists inside of like a technological space, like uh, Allegra is in uh, Existence. But so many of his movies to go along with kind of the secret societies, a lot of the time their secret societies are performers going all the way back to like the brood. Yeah. The, all the Ragland like psychology stuff is almost filmed like black box theater mm-hmm. with, with Oliver Reed, like pulling these emotions out of people as they role play together on stage. And then you get to something which I think is the the closest cousin to this movie, which is crash where you have people staging famous car crashes in order to get a sexual charge or feel anything in the world again. Uh, M. Butterfly again on two different levels, as you've already pointed out, is they have the the society of, of uh, opera performers, but then you have people performing within those performers as being spies and and trying to extract information from one another. One another. Um, you have uh. Maps to the Stars, which I know that neither one of us really love because the whole subplot of, like, Julianne Moore taking on a role that was originally done by her mother. Like, it's just he's always commenting on how we... kind of try to express ourselves and get our point of view whether it be political or emotional or otherwise like across to an audience even if it's an audience of one in some cases. Yeah, I love that. I think that he also
1: really wraps up in this film. We mentioned earlier it's one of his funnier films and
0: Vigo's so fucking v- funny. Vigo's having
1: and and I think Kristen Stewart is is doing a lot of it's a lot of comedy there and and the her boss the the sycophantic uh, leader of the the new organ
0: registry, Don McKellar, yeah. who directed David Cronenberg in Last Night to one of his oh, right. uh, best performances. Yeah, like well, the, it's a real familial endeavor here that that Crimes of the Future becomes. Yeah, and there's um, I think.
1: I like that it really winks and kind of makes fun of just the pretension of art, too. I mean, one of my favorite shots, and that's the one that's used in most of the reviews, is the, the it also is like a Renaissance painting. It's him lying down after performing with his cloak on. He's holding the hand of Lady Seydoux, and Kristen Stewart is, like, walking up. And it, it literally is framed like a Renaissance painting, the colors, everything – but it's also supposed to be fucking ridiculous. Like, it's just like, can you fucking believe this? Like, the, all the, the these artists and these art fans, just like, oh my God. It's like, he's kind of given a middle finger to that, especially again with the, the Don, um, what's his last name?
0: Don McKellar.
1: Don McKellar's character of,
0: we were both commenting, it's basically a producer like, asking a famous artist to, quote unquote, return to their roots. Like, that when we get into the whole, uh, inner Beauty Pageant, which is again one of the most Cronenbergian phrase, phrases, like yeah. kind of committed to to any of his films, is that once we get there and he's he's begging Vigo Tensor to come in and be the star attraction, that feels like either a producer or a film programmer, film programmer or anything yeah. saying, "Come, do your thing for us, and we'll make sure that you get an audience." And like again. To your point, it's Cronenberg being kind of over having to interact with those people. Like, I was listening to an interview lately to where, like, he thought Cosmopolis was going to be his last movie, and he was fine with that. Because he was tired of fighting for financing. He was tired of having to justify, even after having this massive career, like, this whole body of work to where he still had to, like, you know, claw in order to get any kind of, like... Financial backing or commercial backing or anything, like he he was over it. He was cool with just being like, I thought I would be a novelist. Like that's literally what he says. He's just like, I'll I'll just write a couple books and then I'll die,
1: which is it's so sad because you know it is a very eye opening thing to learn. Someone even of his clout, um, who is respected not just by you and me, but just by a lot of people in the film community, not just in genre film, but like. He's adored
0: and it's probably not too much of a stretch to say that crimes of the future was like the biggest premiere at the Cannes Film Festival this year. I mean, that and well, that Top Gun, if you count
1: that. Um, Yeah, but but I guess like Elvis, like those three seem like the big.
0: Yeah. The big. Well, hinge. I more mean like Crimes of the Future bigger than Top Gun and Elvis because those are there because it's just like here's the blockbusters. Right. Y'all love movie star and spectacle yada yada yada. Like Cronenberg loves the French like because of the way that they revere artists and, mm-hmm. and most notably directors. Um like even when he talks about Leah Sadu, like he says out of all of the actors that appear in this movie, she was the most excited because she's French. He like specifically it, says yeah. like she, you know, he he makes the comparison or, or I guess the he contrasts American actors with French actors, and then he says, you know, Americans always say to you, well, if the part's good, I'll work with you, and that sounds great, where French actors are just like, oh, he's directing it? Cool, I'll do whatever he wants. It's just a reverence for the actual artist that he really thinks is cool. So to me, Crimes of the Future was kind of the biggest movie there because it was Mm -hmm. a guy returning to a place which, frankly, really celebrated him, more or less invented an award to give Crash for like most daring vision or whatever it was that year. Like they love him. They think that he's a god there.
1: Well, and, you know, we the Palme d'Or of last year, you know, Titan is a, you know, it's. Straight up Cronenberg riff it's from ca- a French filmmaker. It's carrying that on, and so, and that's that's not lost on people. Is she kind of, which is awesome. I love that film that she's the one who won it, but he's never won before, and he's been on the jury. You know, he's so up in in Cannes business, but I think that scene again is a programmer more than anything of like, sure. Because it even says like, but nothing too extreme. It's almost like we want you, but packaged. You know, that that thing, very similar to like you were saying about, you know, Netflix and and, um, and AMC, we want Cronenberg, but like the way that Marvel uses filmmakers, where it's like, we want us to do our kind of thing with a little
0: bit of Cronenberg color on the outside. Or even we want you to do the thing that people think Cronenberg is, not necessarily what you actually want to do. Well, it's, it's
1: it, I almost would love to see, I agree with that, the way that Showtime allowed David Lynch to do the return the right way where it's about the thing. It's not just most people wanted, you know, more of just like coffee and donuts. Like they wanted, that's what they think of. They think
0: of twin peaks and he's like, I'm not going to give you that. Yeah. I'm giving you an 18 hour, like experimental art movie.
1: Yeah. And that's so cool. And I, that's why I hope that, I think Cronenberg would be great for TV. I really do think a, a Cronenberg project limited series. Cronenberg agrees with you. I would just I would love that. And and one of the one of the projects he was attached to was season two of True Detective, which I'm so glad he did not do. Um, I I don't think, I don't like that season that much. But I also just don't think that would have been a good choice for him.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought that up, though, because we can talk about some of the projects that Cronenberg was supposed to do throughout the past that, like, never actually came to fruition. He famously... Now, according to him, it's... And to bring up David Lynch again, it's kind of like the David Lynch... Return of the Jedi. uh, Return of the Jedi story to where it's more overblown by fans than it is, like... Cronenberg being approached to do Beverly Hills cop, you know, like (laughs) according to him, he was like, yeah, that almost happened. But he's like, I was also on like a list with like 10 other people who are making money. It's just, you're the guy there. And they're like, well, maybe he could do this. Like, as like, again, again, to bring up kind of the Marvel thing. Like back then that was the version of the Marvel movie. It was like, well just get this guy and he can come in and make like a blockbuster because like who really was Martin breast before he made Beverly Absolutely Hills cop, you know, David the filmmakers, Kronenberg. the
1: producer, like Bruckheimer and Simpson were the, the exactly. filmmakers. Yeah.
0: And it's like, you know, Cronenberg will just come in and make this because he's just a competent guy who will shoot the movie and get it out of the way. I mean, but he also almost made total recall. That was closer though. And that was super close to happening. He also he wrote it. And... He also came in and almost made Alien at one point. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, so, yeah. There's like a bunch of stuff that Cronenberg kind of flirted with because I believe there's an alien draft that or maybe an alien script that that Cronenberg wrote at one point that almost became like a novelization too, I believe I'd have to go back and like relook into what actually happened there. But I mean, like the point is there's a lot of stuff over the years that Cronenberg flirted with doing and then was like, nah, for one reason or another, he's like Aronofsky. Like, you know, Aronofsky has been attached to like
1: Every fucking project. Del Toro, too. Both of those guys have been attached to like every movie in the last 10 years.
0: Well, I do think that what's kind of amazing is to compare them to somebody like an Aronofsky or a Del Toro. They always graduated. Like, Aronofsky made Noah. Which is one of the biggest, strangest movies of all time. I really but like it <laughs> It was at a point where. Well, my point is more that somebody trusted him enough to give him that much money yeah, to make hundred million. I think that that big of a movie. Same with Del Toro. Del Toro's made big budget like entertainments. Cronenberg never really moved past mm. the budget level that he kind of operated at, which is more or less pretty small.
1: And I, that's one of the things I really like about his films. We were talking about this when we were watching. I think even Rabid is there's a a limited scope that really works for his kind of stories. I think Crimes of the Future is a perfect size for the story it's telling. I love how tight. Well, it feels janky, too. Some of the effects are a
0: little rough. And and I prefer it that way.
1: I really, and I know it's just me, like, because I love the movie so much and love him, but I wouldn't change anything about this movie. I just think it, it's exactly what it needs to be.
0: Well, to bring it back to Saul Tenser, he never sold out. He always stayed true to himself. He always kept making the art that he wanted to make, and he made it on his terms. And I think that's part of, again, to bring it back to Max Wren then, too, is that it's all about... It always feels like he was a guy that felt trapped by a certain system and was only going to fund his movies outside of that system. Like he didn't like John sales. Yeah. He didn't want to get chewed up by a machine. He wanted to stay in Toronto and keep like making the crashes of the world and everything, because like that's what interested him and he wouldn't, you know, making a Beverly Hills cop or what have you, that would have been like betraying his own kind of, uh, creative instincts. Yeah. And I
1: seen this in the theater, um, I saw it, I guess it was Sunday, um, a couple of days ago. I could tell half the audience did not like it, and I loved that. Because we, oh, yeah. we've talked about, you know, we just did an episode on Top Gun. Of, Top Gun in one way showed me, like, okay, this is how you can do a big blockbuster and get me engaged again. Crimes of the Future showed me that you can be a provocative... Filmmaker and offend a lot of fucking people in the audience. Like, this is what cinema can be, because, again, not to... We're by Marvel every week, but, like, I hated, you know, uh, Multiple of Madness so much, Doctor Strange, where it is trying to please everyone at the same time. It's like, we're gonna go so middle of the road that we're gonna keep... Please everyone a little bit at the time. And, like, Crimes of the Future is like, here's my movie. Like, here's what I want to say. It's such a singular vision. I write a review for it. <laughs> it was on... I think it was on, like, comingsoon.net. It popped up on, like, my You Should Read thing. I was like, I want to see how bad this is. It's one of the worst things I've ever read, just purely as prose. Moron.com. Yeah, just those those people, and they they were they were critiquing it about, like, there's no character development. It doesn't – I was like, it doesn't lead anywhere. I want this and this. I was like, do you know who David Cronenberg is? Like, and that's why I love this film is it feels – it's – it's almost beyond criticism. I think if that's fair, it's like, it is such a personal, like here's my movie. It's so honest. It's so like,
0: it, it's, 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 it's the just, type of movie that I said, this about zeros and ones recently, the mm. Abel Ferrara, like movie that he kind of made in secret yeah. during the, the uh, COVID lockdown in Rome is that it crimes of the future is in some ways, sort of similar, similar in the fact that it's only the type of film that you get to make. If you're like an aging master, Yep. That everybody's like, yeah, sure. We'll give you a couple million to make this, whatever. Like if he wasn't David Cronenberg, crimes of the future ain't happening. Like no young Turks coming up and be, being like, I'm making crimes of the future now. It's like, no, this is the, the product of a guy. Or his Realizing son <laughs> that he's on his way out and like he's trying to put together at least some kind of period on his cinematic sentence, let's say. And this
1: feels like it. I mean,
0: if it this wasn't is... for the shrouds, like this would be a perfect capper. I mean, it literally even borrows uh, the title from one of his earliest short films, like it, it's the end is the beginning, and and you know all this the cyclical uh, kind of transcendence that he's always been about. It kind of reminds me
1: of what either first reformed a card counter was for me, where I think that Schrader had a couple misses. That were production issues and things and you know, yeah. of the like, but they just weren't the movies maybe he would have wanted. They didn't turn out the way of the Canyons, for instance. Um oh, what a movie. Ugh. Um, but First Reformed, it's like, oh shit, where the hell did this come from? You know, it's like he's back with Schrader. Right. And this felt like that to me. Again, cause I dislike Nap to Stars so much. Again, I hate it, but it's like, it's just so kind of off for me. It doesn't connect with me in any It feels. Again, very alien, but doesn't match up with the world we're seeing of like Hollywood people. And this was like, it's giving me everything I want, but it's also challenging in a lot of ways and makes me think about his whole, it's the perfect film for us to talk about his whole career with because it all kind of leads to this. Like he pulls in a lot of different elements from different eras of his filmmaking.
0: Well, the relationship between Vigo's Saul Tensor and Caprice, his. Uh, partner in creation, let's say, who Leah Sadu plays, also feels oddly personal. Yeah. Especially given the fact that between Maps of the Stars and uh, Crimes of the Future, both his wife, Carolyn, who he met on Rabid and who worked uh, on quite a few of his films with him, she passed, mm-hmm. and then so did his sister. Yeah. Uh, Denise, who worked on a whole chunk of his films doing the costumes for him. So Caprice feels in a way kind of like a love letter to both of those women because she's the one who is really like the moral center Mm -hmm. of the film and Saul's like guiding light and keeps him on the path to never selling out always staying true to his vision regardless of how many imitators come along or regardless of how irrelevant he might be quote unquote, or how many like fangirls, which is kind of what Kristen Stewart represents of like, who's totally in love with him and keeps asking him to cut into her and stuff. And like drops the, the infamous line from the movie now that surgery is the new sex. Like that feels like him, paying tribute to these two women who are such a huge part of his life that have now passed. And I think that's also why, you know, for the people who are like, there's no real characters, there's no emotion to this. Like I find this movie deeply affecting because almost as a romance more than an actual metatextual like science fiction movie, because it's about finding that person who just operates on your wavelength and continuing to create with them, regardless of how much the world changes or falls apart or how many people don't care or don't care about your work anymore. It's like, it's about that connection and the fact that like, we're all going to die. Eventually our bodies are going to betray us. Vigo's is betraying him like in the moment to the point that he takes those betrayals and makes art out of it. Like it's all about like finding those people and saying like, as long as I'm here, like you're my person with me and that's, that's what we're going to do. And I find that really touching, especially from a guy who's 80 years old and has done this his entire life. Like he's had those people and now lost them. And now he's basically just waiting to join them in whatever atheistic part of existence comes next.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of our discussion about like phantom thread and like this, you know, an artist. Right. Um, and cause she's an artist too, Caprice, but like being the, the, the star, which he is, you know, and how, how difficult that can be for a partner, you know, and Caprice is so gracious with him, you know, um, with the, in the entire film, she's a great character. And Le us do is just a lovely performer like she really brings that that warmth to the film she's so french and she's just like she's gorgeous but i've always just liked her i think she brings a wonderful presence to anything she's in i mean like i don't like the last couple bond movies but she's like
0: the best part Um, Well, I also think it's pretty deliberate that he gives her the most lavish dress in the whole movie. Like, that's deliberately being like, this is for you, Denise. You know, like that whole first set piece where she has the red dress and is pressing the thing (sighs) and cutting open into Vigo. Like, it's just like, it's so great. Now, we, we haven't even gotten to the point yet of like... How the set pieces in this movie, which double for any kind of action, I guess, or horror that you're really looking for, are just their their performance art. Like that's yes, what it is. And man, they're so fucking cool. I I love it. So I love the um, the Sark, uh,
1: machine. And it's just sarcophagus. It's just the the complete ultimate Cronenberg invention. Like I remember seeing the first trailer for this movie and I was like, okay, I'm in because it's just the, the, every, every curve of that. It just feels like it's pulled out of any right out of his
0: fucking, his brain and put on the screen. Um, well, I mean, this script is 20 plus years old. They've they've said, like, it took him so long to get this movie developed that he gave up on it. And it was Robert Lantos, the producer, who called him and was like, hey, you know, Crimes of the Future, like, we should probably still try to make that. And actually talked Cronenberg into it because he was just done with making movies. He's like, yeah, I'm good. I I hope this, I mean, I, I'm excited for The Shroud. I mean, like,
1: selfishly, I want to see 10 more films from him. I know he's, he's almost 80. Um, but like you said, this is a very good period on, on his career. Uh, but I also want kind of like after like card counter, it's a very, feels like a kind of a perfect ending for Schrader. I'm like, but I want Master Gardener too. <laughs> like, as sure. A, as a fan, I'm like, I'll take this for the rest of my life. Plus, like, I
0: mean, the shroud sees him getting back with Vincent Cassell, oh, So yeah. it's like, Who's so good in Eastern Promises that I'll just watch whatever they do together.
1: Well, and I'm glad you brought up Eastern Promises because it reminded me of a thing we were talking about earlier with fluidity. And I think that, you know, regardless that the fact that Cronenberg is, you know, a straight cisgender male, I think he's a very queer filmmaker and with a capital Q, you know, and that. I not to say homosexual, but, you know, the idea of like reading against the grain, you know, the classic like queer theory, film theory. But also he's one of the few filmmakers I've seen. I'm also a, you know, a straight cisgender male that completely sells the idea of pansexuality. I think it's specifically in Crash when he when he has sex and hooks up with uh, Eli- uh, Elias Gautiz in the in the car, because it's literally two like bodies or two souls connecting that gender and sexual have nothing to do with it. No, like, it, it feels that whole, that film specifically is like, like it's you just kind of,
0: vessels crashing into one on, one another. Absolutely.
1: You said idea of like, you know, the car being a body, it's just these machines, us hitting. And I felt the same way about, you know, uh, Vincent Cassell and his relationship with uh, Vigo in Eastern Promises. Well, he's, even he's, Dead Ringers. I feel like oh, Dead Ringers very much. is
0: one of the earliest to where it's just all about this woman existing with these two uh, literally identical human beings and having this three way sort of love affair with them. That's totally bizarre and and hard to unpack. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is. If we if we get to the theme of
1: we are spirits or we are consciousness riding around in meat sacks. Like it's about what's important is the, yeah. the consciousness inside. Right. And like connecting, doesn't matter what you're writing in, you know, connecting through that or, or changing
0: your body. Well, and it's part of the one movie we haven't even referenced yet. Um, that I do kind of want to end on with, with a question to you is that dangerous method is mm-hmm. the other one too, with where you have Fastbender and Vigo playing two of the greatest psychologists in the history of, of the, that form, like having a sort of pansexual s relationship with one of their patients slash like experiment subjects. Yeah. And that one gets real thorny and kind of uncomfortable. Don't love that movie, but think there's good stuff in it. But I do want to ask you before we kind of go Vigo. So, I think before Vigo, it was Jeremy Irons. That was his greatest Mm -hmm. collaborator. Yeah. Like the one that he could get the the best performances out of um, gave him. I still think that the twins in Dead Ringers are are the greatest bits of acting that he's ever gotten, which is also kind of awesome because like Cronenberg's approach to directing actors apparently is not directing them at all. And just being like, just do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Very hands Um, off. He said, I quote, it's
0: like what can I tell them about acting? They don't already know. Like I'm yeah. not an
1: acting professional. They are.
0: Yeah. So, but where do you think that this one falls in terms of the Vigo collaboration? Because that's a real interesting partnership that they've struck up together.
1: So they have done four films. Um, bottom, I put dangerous method. I'm not a fan. Like you said,
0: I like it. I just don't love it. Yeah. I think it's again, it's lesser Cronenberg, but I think he's really good in it. And he's not into that much though. Yeah. Like, he is a small role. That's much more
1: like, of a fastbender movie. Fastbender and Kieran Knightley are like the, the center of that. Um there's also some like abysmal CGI in that movie, like the opening scene where you're on the boat and it looks
0: it's just like cram yeah. drawings behind it kinda of takes you out of the movie. For a film like that, it's not that, I haven't seen it in a while, so that didn't stick out to me, but like yeah Cronenberg has never been great with CGI. No. Um, He's not great in this movie with CGI. Like those early like bed composite shots are kind of janky.
1: Yeah, it's in the trailer and it's in the movie. But it's again, I kind of like it's it's uh It feels like
0: a tax shelter movie. Yeah,
1: it's it's down home filmmaking. Um I would probably go I think my favorite Vigo performance he's gotten is Eastern Promises. Yeah. Um, I really like History of Violence, but I would actually put Crimes of the Future as number two out of the four. Um, I think Eastern Promises is one of my favorite movies. Period. The Stephen Knight script, Vigo, like that shot of him putting his just the classic time him put his fingers to the throat. Armored Mueller Stahl. Just well, and I think I'm not sure. I think I told you the story, but when I was in grad school was so into Cronenberg like that second semester of my first year that I was teaching a class on phenomenology, the the Vivian Sobchek article and saw all the undergrads. And I opened with the naked, uh, bath fight, um, from Eastern promises to talk about phenomenology and like being physically reacting to what you're seeing. I just played the whole scene, just cranked up the volume and watched all these like undergrads. So fucking uncomfortable, his wiener flopping around. Um, Hell of an action sequence. It's well because he he didn't want um, Cronenberg didn't want him naked. And then Vigo's like, why wouldn't I be naked? And Cronenberg's like, yeah, cool. Like he wasn't going to ask sure, him man. to do it, you know. <laughs> um, but I think Crimes of the Future is really fascinating because I think it's him really doing a Cronenberg impersonation in a lot of scenes. Like he's he's playing that
0: part. Um, All of that weird grunting oh. and like. <laughs> Yeah. He can't swallow. Like, he's so uncomfortable the an, whole time. It's an interesting fullness. Not uncomfortable, per se. He's. That's th- the yeah. other thing that I like about the Caprice uh, and Saul relationship, too, is that, like, she is almost like his bed nurse yep. half the time. Like, mm-hmm. she's caring for this guy because, like, it's out of just devotion to him.
1: And I think the scene where she gets the the implants in her head is really yeah. is really kind of a sad scene too, because she's like, I want something for myself, right? It's, it's like it's almost coming home, like I got a new dress, or I got a haircut. What do you think? And he's like, ah. I don't get it. And it's like he's like kind of like I'm the one, like I'm the one who does the body stuff. This is mine, and you want to you want to do have take a hand at this? That's also the same scene where she says, I want to perform the autopsy, right? You know, so it's like her saying, I want. I don't want to just be your bed nurse. I don't want to just be your your person who props
0: up your career. I want to have a career of my own. Well, it's a lot... In a weird way, the same dynamic that Goldblum and yes. Gina Davis have in The Fly is that it's two. Prof- they meet on a professional level and then they fall in love.
1: Yep it's a, it's an intellectual. I think that's yeah a, again, attraction
0: to one another. The
1: the ultimate pragmatist again. If you you connect on the mind and that becomes the body and that becomes the love. Right. It's like these different ways in to romance. Well,
0: and also, Goldblum knew the magic word: cheeseburger. <laughs> cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Martin, this has been wonderful. David Cronenberg is one of our heroes. I think he will, like... I hope that he makes more movies. I'll never say no to a new Cronenberg, but if this is the last one, I'm perfectly, like, satisfied. I I
1: completely agree with that sentiment. And uh, great to finally fully... We've mentioned him pretty much all the time, but great to finally do a full episode on him with you.
0: Yeah, and I feel like we could have gone on for three hours. Instead, you got 100 minutes out of us. (laughs) But... To all listeners, just so you know, we are going to take now more or less like a mid-season break here, Mm -hmm. but we are still going to be doing episodes for you. It's just that we have a long-form project coming up about some television and films from a, let's say, notorious auteur. Yeah, I'll take that. And I think me and Martin are going to get into some fistfights on the air about it. So t- stay tuned to Secret Handshake. See you then. Bye. Bye.